I'm Deb Eccleston and welcome to Your Shout. Over the next few weeks, RACQ health advocate David Contarini will be interviewing some amazing Queenslanders as part of our special Your Shout health series. Over to you, Dave. This week I'm chatting to ex-professional athlete, husband and dad and outright high performer Scott Draper. Scott exploded onto the tennis court and into our living rooms after a wildcard entry to the Australian Open in 1995 and reached a career-high ranking of 42 in the world. While his sporting career is impressive, his battles off the court are probably the most heartfelt. Legendary tennis great Andre Agassi said Scott is a walking testament to what the human spirit is capable of. He's been described as manic, racy, never stops and fussy, and that's just by his close friends. Uh, And he's here to talk about his enthralling life. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, David. What an introduction. Wow. Some uh, memory lane. I did it all myself. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Scott, I can look up on eBay. I just did this this morning. I can look up on eBay today, and there's a tennis ATP tour intrepid wildcard. You're there. You're number 46. I can get that for three bucks. <laughs> so if I bought that, can you sign it for uh, me? Absolutely. And geez, I'm I'm feeling even better about myself now that my card is worth three dollars. <laughs> well, I hate to tell you, but uh, Maria Sharapova's was up there for four hundred and forty nine dollars. Okay. Well, actually, as a percentage, that's it's not outrageous. Too bad. Yeah, it's know. outrageous. I'm okay with that. What's she ever won? <laughs> well, I think you know. First of all, she's a lot better looking than I am. You know, on the tennis court, she's done a lot more than I have. Um, so I'm happy with that. The ratio is pretty. Decent. I'll, I'll take that. Three dollars is fine. <laughs> All right, deal done. All right, Scotty, great to have you in the studio. Uh, it's going to be great chatting with you today. There's lots to talk about. As most teenagers w- were leaving school and sort of worried about whether that they'll get into uni, you're packing the car, heading off to play satellite tournaments around Australia, if not the world. When did you get this sense of wanting to become a professional athlete? I'm the youngest of three, and we're a tennis playing family. So mum and dad, you know, played, and we followed them around the you know the tennis courts fixtures midweek ladies you name it so we were following them and you know I remember playing from you know my earliest memory so I think I was uh, my first lesson at Mal Anderson's tennis center at the Grange and I was four and couldn't see over the net so tennis has kind of been something that I've been doing my entire life and you know the dinner time conversations would always probably go down a tennis track as you get older and you start playing tournaments you have you know some success you make some state teams etc it gets to a point where you're perhaps 15 16 years of age and you know you're getting closer to having to break out of juniors and the conversation is what do you want to be and it's yeah, I want to be a tennis player but it's kind of this this aspirational thing this dreamlike thing that you have but at the same time there's that question inside am I good enough and I do remember a, a conversation one night about this and my brother who's three and a half years older than me who was also very very good he got to 150 in the world and played some grand slams etc we both had this conversation of being a top 100 player in the world and we both kind of said that just seems ridiculous you know is that even possible you know we were kids that woke up in the wee hours of the morning watching you know Borg and Lendl and Cash and all these sort of people back in the day and it was hard for us to even imagine us being out there doing that but it was definitely a thing we wanted to try and do, but obviously doing it is a whole nother kettle of fish. So I mentioned Andre Agassi. I read his book called Open, where his father bought a some real estate in Las Vegas, and he would, upon inspection of the house, he would run through the house, go to the backyard to see whether or not a tennis court could fit in the backyard. And they finally bought a house. He got his friends around. They put down the slab he had a vision for his son. Was that like your parents? Did they have this vision or you could have done anything? I feel like I was brought up in the picture perfect family. I mean, I'm so grateful. I mean, it's, you know, Grange, a lovely, quiet suburb back when I was growing up. It's not far from the city and, and mum and dad were, you know, your middle class. Dad was a builder. Mum was a stay-at-home mum put no pressure on us whatsoever you know dad might have teetered on that at times but not in a way like you would even get close to reading about these days he was just a a father that didn't have the opportunities when he was growing up his father kind of didn't see tennis as any viable you know option so he went down the trade path and I think that there was times where he was loving watching us play and I've got a sister as well the three of us played love watching us play and obviously when you're a passionate parent 
there are times where that, you know, might encroach on that uh, element of, geez, dad might be putting a little bit of pressure on you, but mm. absolutely not really the case in our family. I was very lucky, the upbringing I had. They were very supportive. Mum was especially someone that never, ever made us feel like anything other than her kids and she loved us and was proud of us and if we did whatever we did it didn't really matter so was that ever that conversation about okay when all this is done what about your studies did did you feel like you at least had to have a backup I didn't this is where I feel like mum and dad have done a great job of letting us decide I've never felt like mum and dad put pressure on me to go you need to be doing x y and z it's interesting the journey I've had and how that nearly happens just via osmosis through just a loving, mm. you know, couple of parents that let you decide. Right. And that notion of independence and you finding your own path, I think, is pretty powerful. It fits even into my own coaching philosophy about how to try and help people. Because if it's done via self-discovery, then I think we're much more likely to embed that than being told how to do something. So I just feel like I had a really wonderful upbringing in that sense. Let's fast forward. You become a tennis professional in 1993. Five years later, your world ranking peaks at 42. In 2005, you win the Australian Open mixed doubles title with fellow Australian Samantha Stoza. But the story here is simply amazing. How do you manage two pro sporting events over two days? (laughs) Probably not very well. I think it's probably worth me giving a little bit of context to this too. So this wasn't something that you'd say was a a coincidence in some respects. And even though at the time I didn't think much of it, which in some respects is maybe a little strange for some people to go, really? You didn't think that was a little outside of the box? I I really didn't. But just to give a bit of context about that, you know, I did make it on the the tour, the tennis tour, and I was lucky to have a have a, a year a career that lasted twelve years or so on the on the professional circuit. Uh, there was a time, you know, where I lost my way through the loss of my first wife, Kelly, and spent two years in the wilderness. And it was actually at that time that I fell in in love with the game of golf. Because some people say, well, Scott, where did this golf thing come from? And as a kid growing up, again, in that lovely family, we had a park across the road, we would play all sorts of sports. Having an older brother, we did lots of things. And golf was one of them where we just grabbed dad's clubs and we whack it around and whatnot. But I never played any competitive golf. But when Kelly passed away in that period, it became a thing where I just used it as therapy. You know, getting out on a golf course for five hours, hitting golf balls, you know, with mates, I'd lose kind of track of time and what was really going on. It was in the quiet moments where you kind of struggle. So in that period, I went from a handicap of four, you know, playing probably 20 times a year or something, to plus two in six months. And it's where I got my... You started with four as well. (laughs) (laughs) I think I started with 44. (laughs) Well, look, I I, I don't know if it's a bat ball thing. I mean, we can talk about that side perhaps, but the bat ball thing was always something I think that I did well because I had so much exposure to it. And this is where you could have a conversation about nature nurture, which is a whole other conversation perhaps. But golf was something I did pretty well. You know, I was off a handicap before, went to plus two in six months. And it was at that time where I had this kind of thought in the back of my mind that was like, hmm, I'm actually not too bad at this game. That's a pretty good sort of transformation. So I parked that and went back to playing tennis and you know, I found my life again, you know, and I, f- I fell in love. I, my current wife, Jessica, she's just wonderful, got three kids, and life transformed for me. But in 2005, this was a year after me being on the sidelines for a year. So in 2004, I've, had a, I've got a knee injury. You know, it's debilitating to the point where I couldn't play for nine months. And what I did was I trained in the gym to get my body back to where it needed to be to play tennis. But at the same time, I would be on the range every single day practicing golf. And in that year, I even made another leap. I kind of got better. I won my club championships and I shot nine under for four rounds. And I'm like, hmm, geez, this golf thing I really enjoy. So I might try and go to tour school at the end of that year, which is the way to get your professional status and play on the professional circuit, with a view that it wouldn't happen, but it would be great experience for me when I want to do it again when I finish playing tennis. It's like, let's let's find out what this golf thing's about. So I go to tour school, all amateur golfers that are trying to become a pro, and you go through two stages, and it gets whittled down to 35 golfers that get their card. 
And I had people like Nick Flanagan, who was the, um, I think, reigning or last year's US amateur champion in the field and whatnot. And I finished 12th out of all these golfers and I got my professional card. So then I was confronted with this thing where I had professional status on the Australasian golfing tour. And I had a thing called the protected ranking in tennis, where when you're out for a certain amount of time, they freeze a ranking, which will allow you to get back on the tennis circuit. So now we're in 2005, it's January, right? So I just, you know, a month or two earlier, I've got my, my professional golfing status and I play the Australian Open, I lose first round and I wasn't planning on playing mix because by this stage, I looked at the calendar and I thought, you know what? The Victorian Open golf championships are on the second week of the Australian Open. And it's pretty negative attitude for a professional athlete, but I'm thinking I'm not going to make the second week of the Australian Open because I was sort of coming back and, uh, you know, I, I just didn't happen. didn't foresee yeah. that happening. But then Sam Stozer, and I really want to call out Todd Reed here, who was her original partner, and Todd, and we could go down a rabbit hole of, of athlete transition, which is really difficult for a lot of athletes. Todd, rest in peace, he's uh, no longer with us. And um, he was, I think you know, what you'd classify as a victim to the struggles of athlete transition. So Todd actually decided not to play with Sam Stozer. And she said, Scotty, do you want to have a game? I said, absolutely. Let's have a game. So we start playing. And after the first match, I'm like, oh my God, she's good. (laughs) And mixed doubles is a thing where if you're an average male playing with a phenomenal female, you will always beat a phenomenal male playing with an average female. It's just the way it works. It's just, you know, it's a strange phenomenon, but that's just the thing in mixed doubles. So I'm going, oh my God. And I said to my family, we are a chance. Like I, I just had this feeling like we're a chance. She's so good. So we started progressing through the, the draw and lo and behold, second week comes, we're still going and I'm in the quarterfinals. I'm like, oh my God, I've got a, I've got a clash. We've got to play the semifinals of the Australian Open on the day of the first round of the Victorian Open Golf Championships. I'm like, oh my God. So I had to speak to both tournament directors to say, can you kind of figure this out so that I can play both? And so they were good enough to put me in the morning of the Victorian Open and they put me at night for the mixed doubles of the semifinals. And so, you know, I went out to Woodlands Golf Club and, and played my first round, did my press, got in the, in the car, went across town, back to Melbourne Park, play the semi-finals of the mixed doubles i ended up missing the cut of the victorian open because it's two rounds you got to make the cut to play the last two rounds missed the cut but sam and i kept progressing and we you know held up that trophy of the australian open uh, which is kind of a, a strange thing and, and people were blown away by this it wasn't probably until after that i thought this was something a little strange but at the time for me it was just what you had to do it was like okay i've got golf status go and play that go and play the tennis and you manage it the best way you possibly can but i i don't think it's something that gives you the best chance of performing well at one thing even though we won it was very difficult to manage you know two professional sports in the same day i might add also that you're a left-hander when you hold a tennis racket and you're a right-hander when you hold a golf club yes that is true and i don't know why but uh i only know one left-handed tennis player that plays golf left-handed so there's a thing about lefty tennis players playing golf right. Scott, you wrote a book about your career on and off the court. What was the meaning behind the book's title, Too Good? Sometimes phrases that have been there your entire life become something much more. And I think too good is that for me. It's funny when I used to walk up to the net and I would lose a tennis match, I I generally would say to my opponent, too good. Like, well played, too good today. You know, it was like a too good an acknowledgement to them, hats off, look forward to meeting you next time. Obviously, there's a lot of failure in sport, particularly in tennis, and particularly someone like me, that 42 in the world, top ranking, you know, even if you're Federer, you lose quite a bit. For me, I would go home a loser every single week of my life. I won once at the highest level uh, in Queens, which is a, a real feather in my cap, preceding tournament to Wimbledon. It's a big achievement for me. My career involves every week going home losing. So you get used to this concept of failure and redefining what failure really means. And so too good was just a statement I made often. However, when I did lose Kelly, my first wife, uh, to cystic fibrosis, as I mentioned before, was two years in this kind of um, rut's probably too loose of a term. I, I think I was completely lost. You know, you, you, I didn't suffer some of the things that you might classify in the grief cycle. I was never angry per se. But I struggle with identity, like who am I now? What the hell is life all about? What does this mean? What is this 
thing that we've got to navigate this thing called life. I mean, I was kind of in that space. And every time I'd go through this cycle of thinking and delving, I kept coming back to a problem that you know is to is very true, but you don't want to confront it. And that is that Kelly is gone. And I know you know that at the time, but it's very hard to get your head around that. And I kept arriving back at that problem that I've lost Kelly. I don't like that. I don't want that, but I've got to find a way forward. And I came to this realization that Kelly was someone that stood for courage, someone who put stuff aside in terms of what she had to deal with and focused on what mattered. And that is she found her path in a way whereby you know your life could be short, but I'm not going to let that stop me live the life I want to lead. And I found that at the time, but even more so on reflection, incredibly inspiring. Here I was, a human being who is young. I was 25 when she passed away. She was 23. In some respects, I've got the world at my feet and I'm stuck here. I'm stuck. And I think, can I just call out that word stuck? Because we might (laughs) come to that later when we get into purpose. I was actually disrespecting the very thing that she stood for. She could have chosen to be stuck and grapple with this thing called cystic fibrosis, which is a disastrous and a, and, a, and a sinister type illness, but she didn't. And I've got that choice. I've got that power of choice as well. I came to this thing that, you know what? It is actually not dissimilar to an opponent across the net that is actually better than you on the day. And I can choose to shake hands to this situation and say, you know what? Too good. It is actually out of my control. I cannot change this, but I can choose a different path forward. And so too good became quite a profound saying in my life. And I still to this day carry it forward. And, you know, the theoretical basis behind this is, you know, things like the, you know, circle of control, circle of influence and and the circle of concern. And you can bucket those things. And for me, this was absolutely in my circle of concern, didn't know how to deal with it, but I brought it into my circle of control. And so I can actually choose a different path here. And too good was a way for me to find that path. So it was kind of this phrase that I said many times, not even thinking about it, to a profound statement that helped me move on from losing Kelly to even me playing Roger Federer some four years after Kelly had passed in Cincinnati, having seven match points against one of the greatest players ever and losing and going, too good. There's nothing I can do. I did everything in my power to try and get the outcome that I wanted but the process is all that matters. I did what I needed to. I tried to increase the probability of success. It didn't happen too good. And it's a really liberating thing, which is probably why I have this belief when I talk about failure, that for me personally, the only type of failure is when we don't give our best efforts. Because when I put my head on the pillow at night, I know in my heart of hearts that I've given it a red hot go. There is genuine peace in that. Because what else have you got than your best? And if you don't get the outcome, you know what? I live to fight another day. Let's try it again. Let's go again. And it's very, very liberating. And it's all about the process rather than the outcome. I, I didn't realise how much as a tennis player that, that you would lose. It's a 50-50 proposition, right? It's very binary. You win or you lose. And how you somehow internalise that and the way that you've almost come full circle to say, well, if this is going to be part of life, if this is going to be a normal day for me, then I better start getting through it. And you better love what you do. Mm. You know, and because you're miles from home, you're yeah. on the other side of the world, and you're losing. That yes. that could be a very, very dark place. Absolutely, and competition is a is an interesting thing. And I'm someone who, and for people even who are close to me, when I say this, they find this a little strange. When I say I'm not that competitive, but that sounds really weird for someone who's unbelievably competitive. And let me just explain that for a moment. I'm not a combative person, meaning away from a sporting arena or field or situation where two people or two teams have signed up to compete, I don't like confrontation. I'm a people pleaser. I want to rescue people. I don't like having argy-bargy. However, there's something about competition where when two people have signed up and there's kind of this hidden handshake that says, we've signed up, let's do this thing. It's like game on. I love it. And I love what competition brings me at a personal level because... If you don't love the gamut of emotions that comes with competing from choking and despair and absolutely can't find your game through to jubilation, elation and all the things that come in between, you're going to be in for a pretty rough road. You've got to love what it does because it's the challenge of competition 
and dealing with the emotions that come from competition and also the cognitive challenge of having to problem solve while you know you're either you know your respiratory you know your respiratory system is absolutely firing on all cylinders you, you your heart rate's over 200 you can barely get your breath and you're still trying to problem solve it's an really interesting environment and i love competition for that reason and that's why i played and that's why i continue to find ways in which i can challenge myself and that's why i love playing golf because golf is a completely different vehicle where you never get your heart rate over 200 your heart rate increases but it's this kind of like different emotion that you have to deal with and it's the silence it's the quiet and maybe that inner voice that might be saying the worst of things and you're trying to manage that and you're trying to this little ball down the bloody fairway onto the green or whatever it's a completely different experience I've often had this theory that, you know, when you're playing either tennis or golf in this silence, because it's not rugby, there's no one throwing how you can get instantly better on the field mm. in, in terms of the peanut gallery. Yeah. And I have this theory that, the, you know, the smaller the ball, it's the quieter the, the audience, yes. isn't it? Yes. And, and if, you, <laughs> if you don't use that time or that quiet well, it really can get difficult, mm. and particularly golf. You've got something which I wished I had... And something which a lot of people wish they had, but it's something which we can all have, and it's called a purpose statement. Can you share what your purpose statement is, Scott? So I'm a, a huge, a huge advocate and proponent of people finding their purpose. It is the foundation for me to this notion of sustainable performance. We could talk about high performance, but I prefer the terminology of sustainable performance, and I think purpose is really at the, at the basis of that. So my current purpose statement, which I always revisit whenever I feel like I get out of bed and the statement itself still doesn't give me goosebumps and it, there's something else that I need to think about that can help me shape the path that I want to be on. My current purpose statement is I want to live with love, humility and conviction to unshackle the stuck and instill belief in others that we are capable of shaping our destinies to be whatever we want it to be. When I do this kind of work, because my life has transitioned completely away from sport and I've been consulting for you know five or six years now and I work, God, with state and federal government, senior execs through to corporates, through to innovation, and purpose is something that I'm really passionate about and trying to help executives find their purpose because I feel we're in a, in a world today where we're so reactive, we're so reactive to the day-to-the-day, the to-do list, and we're just trying to keep our head above water, so to speak. And I think that one of the reasons, and it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons why we do get a little lost is because people have actually lost why they exist, what gets them out of bed in the morning, and it's nearly just confronting the moment-to-moment stuff as opposed to really all the stuff that matters and making sure your life reflects what's important to you. And so when I work with people around a purpose statement, I, I do say to them, look, it's not necessarily about having the purpose statement it's the process of you working through what your purpose is. It can take time. It can take effort. It can take thinking. And one of the things that I encourage people to do is to think about what are the turning points or moments in your life that have really shaped who you are. And we've all got a story. And some of us have got really compelling stories. And those, for me, are the things that help us shape what we value and why we exist and the way in which we want to show up in the world, so to speak. And so when I talk about my purpose statement, I talk about the stories that link to every single word and phrase within that. And so when we talk about or when I mention the word conviction, for example, that is absolutely grounded in Kelly. When I talk about I want to live with love, humility and conviction, when I say that word, I can't help but think about Kelly. She was someone who lived with as much conviction as anyone that I've ever seen. Why does that even matter? Well, you know what? When I get out of bed in the morning and I might have a thought about should I do it or not, if it's something I care about, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it to the best of my abilities. And this even goes into things as silly as me trying to become a professional golfer. Because most people at the time said to me, Scott, 
you're crazy. You're kidding yourself. How in God's name do you think you're going to go from being a tennis player to a golfer? The golfers thought I was a sideshow alley act. We have people out there that are always trying to put us down, suppress what we're capable of, and even ourselves are capable of doing the same thing. For me, a purpose statement can help you lay that foundation to really what matters to you. And if it really matters to you, it doesn't matter what other people think. Because again, it's the process of trying to do what you want to be and the difference you want to be in the world is really what matters. Whether you achieve that or not is kind of irrelevant because it gives you meaning. It gives you something that gives you buoyancy, a brand and a, and a sense of self and purpose. It's um, something very, very powerful for me. So where did the love and humility part of that come through as you talk about your turning points? Purpose is first of all, very personal. And sometimes people say to me, Scott, are we talking about my leadership purpose, a, a purpose at work, a purpose at home? Whether you like it or not, we are who we are at work and we are who we are at home. You can't separate the two. You can't go to work and say, I'm someone different. You might mask, you might bring a different persona, but if you've got troubles at home, it's very hard not to bring those to work, even if no one else knows about them. It's going to affect you in some way. And conversely, if you've got troubles at work, it's very hard to kind of separate that and not bring that home. We are one person who does many things. We are people at work. We're husbands, wives, partners. We're, you know, all these different people that we have to navigate. And purpose is one way to, to, to lay that foundation. Now, to answer your question around love and humility, so love is for something very personal to me. And I know how important it is to all of us, and I know how important it is to me. I've had unbelievable love in my life. I've had amazing family. I've had amazing relationships and amazing friends. And I know that when Kelly was gone, there was this huge hole in my life. And so I've got this thing about, I know that I need to have the opportunity to love someone, for them to love me, but also to be in love. And I think that's kind of three parts to when I think about love, how important it is to me. And if it's not there, I've got to find it. It's got to be part of the relationships that are part of my life. Who do I really care about? And when I know that, then I invest the time proportionally as best I can to all the people that matter. When it comes to humility, for me, that's a family value. It started as a family value and we were a family that would never allow anyone to stick their head up too far. And if you became even remotely arrogant or egotistical or whatnot, cocky, you'd get shot down pretty quickly. And my dad always had this thing about being a draper. And I thought it was really clever about what it means to be a draper. Some of the things were to be humble. You know, we don't go out into the world and big note. We're drapers. We don't do that. Now, that has carried through to me working in teams. And one of the things that does get in the way of high-performing teams is people who are egotistical and uh, have that level of kind of narcissism or whatever it may be. When you have ego healthy people in your team and no one needs to stick their head up, you truly build a, a trusting environment, a collaborative environment where we actually value each other's presence, our opinions, our backgrounds, etc. And humility can play a role in making that part of your ethos within a team. And so I value it at many levels, but humility is really, really important to me. You know, leadership in many respects is about service. It's not about you. Absolutely not about you. And one of my probably favorite talks that have been streamed is Simon Sinek. And by the way, it's not his start with why. It's not his why, how, what. He's obviously well seen on TEDx, you know, vision, etc. But he's got one called Why Leaders Eat Last. And he talks about mm. endorphins and dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin. And, and he goes through the biological or anthropological side of our background and how one of the roles of the alpha in a group or a leader within the group was to keep the tribe safe or to keep the community safe. Well, when danger came, hmm. their role was to keep the tribe safe. And when we think about leadership, there's a responsibility there when danger comes in any form. And obviously danger looks very different these days to what it used to look like. But the role of a leader is to serve others and to keep them safe it's not about them that's the role and humility if you're someone that's thinking about you and it's about your career path or the way you're viewed or what that might do for your career well obviously you've missed the service part and humility is something that i think helps you mm. find that so we've got a purpose statement we've got turning points how does somebody listening to this message how do we quickly 
in, in a sort of hacking sort of way, how can we start to think about if we wanted a purpose statement, if we wanted to live with purpose, what's a qu- quite a quick way that we can start getting these concepts together? I think it's important to talk about why too because until you kind of can attach the importance of it to your own life, then it might be difficult to be motivated enough to actually do it. So one example that I think is really relevant at the moment, and I've been thinking about this because I'm always trying to think of ways to sell the why, to why this is important. I think the bushfires has been our most recent example of this. The question I have to myself, and I'm sure other people may think about this, is that why are we so darn good when us as a society, as a race, we struggle? So the bushfires have completely just rampaged this nation in so many respects, and you can see the outpouring of love that it's done across the globe. So why is it that when this happens, we are at our best? Now, one of my theories on this is that when it happens, there is some connection to us just as a race. We actually drop everything. There seems to be no discrimination. There seems to be this acceptance of diversity and all sorts of things. But I reckon that we all of a sudden realize that all the stuff we're worrying about today doesn't really matter. And I think that we get this renewed perspective around what really matters. It's about life. It's about family. It's about community. It's about, you know, and I, I think that that gives people a sense of meaning when they jump out of bed in the morning. It's all about the foot. It's all about the bushfires. It's all about supporting others that are, that are in need. I think they've got purpose at that time. Now, what happens is when we go back to times of stability, where life is back on the, on the train and people wake up tired and they might grab that bit of toast or not, or a coffee and they smash themselves all day long and then they're thinking about oh my god dinner and school pick up and whatnot you get dinner organized you're cleaning up the house and then it's okay kids bedtime and then it's oh i've got to catch up on work you work from 9 to 11 11 30 you go to bed stuffed you wake up stuffed and the cycle continues when i say this people go you just describe my life <laughs> why do we do that why do we do that and i think and i say think in a humble way i believe i know because my experience in working with a lot of people in rooms in all the leadership programs that I run is that this is a common theme. And I believe it's because people haven't necessarily found their purpose. They will say, Scott, my purpose is my family. And I say, absolutely. Like that's unbelievably important. God forbid, and you know, not that I'm a religious person, but let's say your family are no longer. You're still you. And by the way, for you to be the best for your family or for you to be the best to your partner or to the best to your colleagues, You've also got to nourish you. You've got to actually know what it is that motivates, inspires, nourishes, fulfills you at a personal level. And now your purpose statement can encompass all these things. It can encompass family. It can encompass your role. It can encompass anything you want it to be. A purpose statement can be holistic, but it's kind of your North Star. It's like you get out of bed and you go, I know what I'm here to do. Because the unfortunate thing about our lives is that we are expendable. We come to work and if you say, are we busy? Everyone says they're busy. I'm busy. You busy? Yeah, everyone's busy. But when we leave our role, does the company all of a sudden just fold? No, it doesn't. Life goes on. Don't take ourselves so goddamn seriously. We get busy for the sake of being busy as opposed to what is the difference I want to make in the world? And we have that choice. And purpose can lay a foundation for you starting to think about what are the priorities in my life? How much time do I want to be spending with family? How much time at work? How much time with my hobbies? How much time with the things that I just love to do? That is really, really important. And when we talk about high performance, high performance isn't someone that smashes themselves in one pursuit because we could look at so many domains and let's choose sport, for example. Tiger Woods, when his personal life went into disarray, he no longer could perform. Novak Djokovic, when his life was in disarray, he could no longer perform. We can't expect to rock up in a workplace when all this stuff is going around us to be at our best. And purpose is one way to help you find that. To do that, find the turning points in your life. So this is a Bob Dick process. And Bob is a well-known, he's a Queenslander, he's a well-known guy that does a lot of um, work in this space. And it's the starting point for me in terms of how you can find it. What are those things in your life that you look back on and go, okay, there was a shift, there was a learning, there was an experience, an event, a life moment that has really, really shaped who I am. Go back, trawl through your life, find them, write them down. What was the thing that came out of it for you? 
So for instance, me losing Kelly, I would say that I learned that life is not a dress rehearsal. Let's have a crack. Let's live with some conviction. Do the things that matter because I may not be here tomorrow. So that's an example of how that turning point has shaped how I think. We could talk about me with obsessive compulsive disorder and we maybe are going to chat about that. That taught me never ever place your self-worth on outcomes because that's a disastrous place to be. And so I always carry that forward. So every turning point that I've had in my life has a profound impact on the way I want to show up, the way I see the world, what I value. And if you can write all those turning points down and how it shaped you, it's a phenomenal starting point for you to start thinking about that. You will also need to go into things like, what are my skills, my attributes? What do friends say about me? What are the times when I completely lose track of time, where I just am so energized? What does that look like? What do you do? Now, once you've done a bit of mind mapping and you've done all this sort of stuff, you're then going to have to crack at writing a little draft statement. Now, the first one might be clunky, but write something down. What you do then is you read it out aloud. You read it out aloud. If you do not get the goosebumps or a sense or a surge of like, wow, that really connects with me, you have to start again because it's not the right one. You have to keep refining until you've got this really good understanding about who you are and who you want to be and how purpose shapes that. You mentioned OCD. You've called this, I guess, part of your life or this thing as the monster. Tell us about the monster. Where did it come from? How did you deal with it? I was walking out of my bedroom one day. I had this thought about going back in my room and making my bed. We had chores at home. You know, I was 18 and this one side of my brain said, go back in and make the bed. The other part of me said, no, do it later. I was compelled to go back in. And I grew up in a house where dad was a church organist. So I had a religious upbringing. And I did mention before that I'm not religious. And that's come from travel, lots of travel and seeing different cultures and ways of thinking. And, and by the way, I've got, it's not a political thing or a religious thing. It's just a view. And I'm happy for anyone to have their view. But at the time, I was very religious, and I thought that if I didn't make that bed perfectly, then then God would punish me with vomiting and things I was fearful of. And so I went back in the room, and I made this bed perfectly, and that was day one. Nine months later, I'm taking three and four hours to get to bed at night. I had a routine where everything in a room at the end of the day, because I like closure, needed to be in a certain place. Bits of paper like like that are in front of you right now, David, that was my worst nightmare because I would have to straighten that bit of paper to an edge of a desk or it would have some geometry where it was situated. And once I was happy with that, I would touch it three times, but I never liked the way I touched it. So then I'd have to do a cleansing touch or a reset touch to the right, but try and do that without moving a bit of paper. So I'm down really close to this bit of paper trying to touch it to the right without moving it. Then I'd do three threes nine another reset or cleansing touch to the right and then nine threes at 27 so it was 42 touches in total but often I'd move the paper so I'd have to go back to actually you know aligning it again to get it straight that could take me 20 minutes 30 minutes for that bit of paper this was every part of the room and I was in Umea and I had this kind of comical moment where after I'd done my three hours of fixing things up I went to the light switch of course you know turn it off 42 touches on the light switch I was in a kind of a back cave. I was billeted with a family. I was down in the basement, very dark when you turn the lights off, couldn't see. Bed was about seven metres away. And of course, I have to do the triple jump to bed. So I do the triple jump, but it's kind of an obstacle course to get to bed. I'd knock something, light it go on, away we go again. Now, I didn't know what it was called at the time. I had no idea. I just knew I was unwell. And it bothered the living daylights out of me, which is why I call it the monster, because I'm someone who is absolutely at times incredibly pragmatic, logical, sane. And here I was, this kid who's got no issues in his life with this monster that was controlling me. And I couldn't control it. And I think that monster was also attached to the fear of God that if I didn't th- didn't th- do things perfectly, I would be a sinner. I would be. Do- it was just disastrous. So I came home from this trip and I, I laid in bed or I lied in bed at, that night and I was kind of in a depressive state, which I've never... Uh, had I'd never had before and I've never had since I made a date in two weeks time when I you know leave my mum's and mum and dad's house to drive to the next event I'm not doing it I went cold turkey I went from you know three hours 
Are you sh- are you sharing this problem with others, no. Scott? Are you are you getting help? Are no. you saying, Mum and Dad, I'm, I I think I'm going crazy? No, and which is really a problem, right? I should have, uh, I could have, you know, reached out and said, look, I'm struggling. But I'm an incredibly stubborn character when I want to be, and I felt embarrassed about what I was doing. Uh, Mum saw me going in the house and sometimes straightening towels and whatnot. She probably just thought I was neat. Know, really neat and whatever, <laughs> but she thought there was something a bit weird because I'd check locks and do lots of things. But I went cold turkey in it, and that was so liberating the first night to go to bed in five minutes. However, <laughs> I didn't know that OCD had... And for anyone who's listening that thinks, geez, I've got a bit of OCD... The difference between someone who has OCD and, say, perfectionistic disorders is intrusive thoughts. You can be someone that wants to close pegs a certain way and line things up and be superstitious and check locks. If you don't have intrusive thoughts, you're probably not someone who has OCD. You're someone who just actually has a bit of a ritual that's been... It's on steroids. Hmm. Intrusive thoughts is a whole other kettle of fish where you can't get thoughts out of your mind that are really confronting, very graphic, and I did not know this until I went on SBS Insight at 35 years of age or something. And I went on a program about OCD. And I started to hear stories and I learned more about intrusive thoughts. I'm going, it was actually really confronting for me because I'm You're going, like, That's oh me. my God, hmm. I had that for 20 years post me going cold turkey on touching everything. And, but I didn't think much of it. I just thought, I'm going to beat this thing. And the way I tried to beat it, was by thinking about them. So if I had a bad thought, and I could give you so many from bones in my lower limb going through the skin and penetrating into a clay court as I slid out wide and just playing it over and over again to loved ones dying to just really graphic thoughts, I would go, right, I'm going to beat it. And I'd keep thinking about it. And it took me about 20 years. And that's why I'm so much more kind to myself, and we could talk about that if you want. But... I, I came to the realisation that there are thoughts that you don't have to beat. They're I don't just have thoughts, to beat them. Right? They're, just, They're thoughts, just thoughts, right? And so I had to train my mind that when a thought that I didn't like and I knew I was going in that rabbit hole of trying to beat it, I just go, no, I'm not doing that. And I had to practice it and it became very tiring. I did all this on my own. I, I didn't know what the drama was. I said, okay, I've got a bit of a thing going on here. I'm going <laughs> to work through this. But it took me 20 years to beat it. And so I'm someone sitting here now at 45 years of age who... I'd say I am, without question, the best I have ever been in my life in terms of self-compassion, having purpose, having energy, being... You know, it took me a long time to get here, and it's been a real roller coaster ride. But the monster is something called OCD for me, and it had complete and utter control over me, and it was something that I look back on and I'm thankful for, which might sound really strange because it actually has shaped who I am and it's it's helped me understand a lot more about the way I tick, the way others tick, how inner critic can be so um, disastrous for us and how we've got to develop our inner coach because there is stuff going on for every human being and most of us think that we're the only ones suffering and that is not true and we need connection, we need to tell our stories, we need to be more vulnerable and when we are, we create a greater connection and it's for me, the spice of life. Tell us about this inner critic, Scott. I mean, we talked about your early career as losing, you having to pick yourself up from that. From a work environment or a work perspective, there's plenty of times where we feel we're not good enough for this job or what am I doing here or why am I on this panel or why am I on this committee? I haven't got much to contribute. We potentially feel like that. Where do you think this comes from? Fear of failure. And that's where, if I go back to my failure comment, around the only one type of failure for me is when you uh, you don't give your best efforts and the only thing you can control is the process. And when I talk about fear of failure, what we tend to do is we will leave things in reserve. So no matter what it is, sometimes we don't necessarily give our best efforts because in the back of our mind, there's a weird justification going on saying, well, I didn't really try. I did. I could have done more, and if I did, I would have got that role, or I would have done this, or I, hey, I know I could, you know, maybe get on a new fitness regime and lose weight, but I don't need to at the moment, or whatever it is. And I think there's this thing about being confronted with if we were to completely bare our soul, to be completely vulnerable, to completely put ourselves out there for failure. If we do fail, are we going to be able to cope with that? 
I think that question plays out a little bit for us. We have a bit of a fear of failure. Now, the thing that I love about, say, positive psychology, and I'm not a psychologist, but there's a part of positive psychology, and it's a therapy called acceptance commitment therapy. And what that side of things does, it gets us to kind of get used to acknowledging and normalizing emotions that are normal emotions and and normal thoughts. So having those thoughts of, oh my God, am I good enough? That's a completely normal thought. It's okay. You're someone that's thinking like every other human being. Share it. Talk about it. Talk about your fears. Talk about what you're worried about. Talk to a colleague. Talk to a mentor. Talk to people because they've got the same fears and it's okay. Then what are we going to do about it? How are we going to manage that? You know, I think about kids in this. Anyone who's got kids, you know, the kids have got sports carnivals or exams or whatever it is. The thing that we say to them is we love you. You'll be great. Relax. Don't worry. But yet when we were kids, we had a head over a bowl before exams, vomiting. We, would, we couldn't eat breakfast, headaches, whatever. Normal. Normal. So what you're going through, you might say, I remember that. What an awful feeling. I remember not being able to eat breakfast. And they all of a sudden listen to their mum and dad and go, wow, you were like this? Yeah, I was. Terrible. Acknowledge that it's terrible. But guess what? You can't avoid it. And by the way, this might be the feeling of trepidation about what's going to happen. Isn't that exciting? Change the, you know, reframe kind of what this emotion is. Because if you take these emotions away, life would be pretty boring. We wouldn't compete. We wouldn't do the things we do. We need a bit of stimulation to make it exciting and just go isn't that wonderful and i used to say this thing isn't it delicious right (laughs) it's trying to reframe what we do but i think that inner critic is so strong and we need to develop our inner coach and where that came from was actually an experience i had once upon a time with a a leadership program and i was asked to go into a process and the, the question was think of a time when your inner critic was in overdrive and i went to a time when we had to make the impossible decision of turning the life supports off for Kelly. And 17 years after that, I actually had guilt about it. And here I was, someone who has talked about it, written a book on it, got help, you know, mentors, but there was still stuff that I had suppressed in there somewhere. I think we are continually suppressing stuff. We're not addressing things. We're not reflecting. We're not talking. We're not being, you know, caring of self, so to speak. And we're kind of like a bit of a a, a pressure cooker, mm. just waiting to explode. Mm. And for me, in a critic and in a coach is this process where we actually spend time going, okay, I've got some thoughts going on right now that aren't overly helpful. How do I become an inner coach here? What am I going to actually talk to myself about to help me work through this this process of going from inner critic to inner coach and vice versa is really powerful for you to kind of think about how you can do that and develop that skill why is there always someone though that we work with scott uh, and now with your leadership training your you've transitioned from sport into leadership you're you're leading teams and you're advising teams on on matters of leadership but we've got those those people that we work for or with that always seem to be more confident. They always seem to know what to do. They always seem to be the the person in the meeting which has all the answers and so on. Are you saying that they don't have any inner critic or they're just very good at kind of suppressing that? There's no doubt that there are people whose inner critic is completely holding them back to people who have one but actually are really good at managing it. Mm. When I say that it's a it's a theme that I see a lot, it's a predominant theme. It's not a theme that's holding some people back to the extent where they need to really spend time developing it. I would say that I've got to a point where my inner coach is actually really good. But that's not to say that I still don't have those thoughts of, oh my God, I'm about to embark on something and am I good enough? But you've got to acknowledge it. You've got to work through the process of going, okay, great. All right, I'm about to get out of my comfort zone. And I know that being out of our comfort zone is actually really good for us. That's when we grow, we develop. So it's kind of reframing, I think, the things that we think inside so that that's a normal emotion that we have, but I can do something about it. And this experience is going to make me better than where I am right now. So it's a completely different way of thinking. And if people don't have that way of thinking, they need to develop it. Because inner critic, for me, and self-compassion is the basis of us actually getting to the point where we might even start thinking about having a purpose. Because if you don't feel like you're worthy or you're enough or you're not good enough or whatever it may be, it's pretty hard to sit down with that person and go, what's your purpose? 
you've actually got to the point where going, I deserve good things. I deserve the best out of life. I'm, I'm deserving these things. And if you don't have that, you need to work on that. Then we have a chat about purpose, mm. right? Once we got purpose, now do you have the energy, the mental, cognitive, emotional, spiritual energy to be your best self? They are the three layers for me that sit under the surface of leadership capability. When leadership programs are uh, implemented, it's often about capability. For me, that's important. But until you've got that self-compassion layer, that purpose layer, and that energy layer, you're not maximizing the capability that you currently have, and that's the place to start. Then, right, now I know what I'm all about. What capability is going to help me be the person I want to be? Have I got some deficits there, some gaps that I need to develop? Great, let's do that. So now it's not just about learning, it's attaching learning to what matters to you. We've talked about the... I guess the uptake of humility when it comes to uh, leaders or, or, or indeed leading well. For young leaders out there listening to this, Scott, what would be three tips as they start their journey to be a good leader? My first tip would be, are you someone that wants to find out? You know, one of my favorite quotes is by Marianne Williamson, and I can't recite the whole thing, but it starts with, our deepest fear is not that we're inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. So there's kind of got to be this this baseline of I want to explore a pathway. Like I'm I'm and it doesn't have to be you don't have to have clarity about that pathway. It's just I want to make a difference. I want I'm I'm worthy of you know being a happy, successful, fulfilled, nourished kind of human being. I am de- deserving of that. If you're not there, mm. that's a place to start. So tip number 1. Number 2 is as you know, you've got to start thinking about your purpose. Now for young people who haven't necessarily had the you know the gamut of experiences and you know turning points perhaps that have shaped who they are and they're still trying to find out who they are then I would suggest literally just diving into things that you think might be aligned to what you love because it's the experience itself when you give yourself fully and you're willing to lay yourself bare it's the experience that you actually get a chance to go oh my god that was so good or hmm, that wasn't so good, or there was parts I liked, parts I didn't like, you can actually go through this process of over time refining what it is that truly nourishes you. But what I wouldn't recommend is if you're someone that goes to work and sees it as Groundhog Day and you go home and it's like all my my whole life's about work, then I would say you probably need to think about that. The reason why I say that is because it's not that we... Uh, can avoid mortgages and paying the bills and all the responsibilities we have in life. But what the difference is, is if we do have that Groundhog Day feeling, the day we wake up and go, right, over the next three or four years, I'm going to work towards a shift. I'm going to work towards another career pathway. You wake up with the same job, but there's this thing in the back of your mind that goes, I'm excited about what I'm working towards. So if you're not working towards something, then I would say you need to be working towards something. Mm. Young leaders, it's about service. It's, it's service for everyone. If you want to inspire people, you want to lead people, it's not about you. Scott, there's a great saying that uh, we are the sum total of the five best or five worst people we spend our time with. I wish you were part of my top five, mate. It's been a fantastic pleasure in uh, chatting with you today. The amazing life of Scott Draper. You've got so much to give, and I'm just so grateful that you've given some of your time today. Thanks, David. It's been a pleasure, and I look forward to continuing our chats because I, I really enjoy it. Thanks, mate. Thank you for listening to Your Shout, brought to you by Queensland's largest club, RACQ. To hear more, subscribe, or for more great content like this, go to racq.com forward slash living. Listener.